0: Q&A with Bishop Julian Portius
1: Hello dear listeners this is another episode of Question and Answer with Bishop Julian Porteus, and I have Jovina Graham Hello there. and myself, Jeremy Ambrose, here to, yes, to, to question the bishop with all sorts of interesting things we'd like to know the answer for. So to begin with, Bishop Julian, I hear you've just been to a conference, you've just been to the Great Grace Conference, and this conference was looking back at and celebrating the 50-year anniversary of the Second Vatican Council. So perhaps let's talk about this for this episode today, and maybe I can start by asking you what's been the influence, what's been some of the influences of the Second Vatican Council on the Church today, on our century?
2: There's no doubt that the Second Vatican Council was the major event for the Church in the the last century, and uh, its uh, effects continue to flow through the Church uh, even today. And, and uh, to a large extent, we would say that um, so much of the way the church is moving does, can be traced back to the influences and effects of the Second Vatican Council. It, it's often said that a council takes 100 years to work itself out in the church. So uh, we were halfway there, if you like, <laughs> to, to the effects of the Second Vatican Council. But after 50 years, we're probably in a place to stand back a bit and give a bit more historical perspective to to uh, the effects of the council. Uh, obviously there is a body of teaching, there are the, all the documents and so forth, but the question we, we ask ourselves is how has that, apart from just the practical application of a number of uh, new things, uh, changes in the liturgy and so forth, but the deeper question, what has been the overall impact upon the church uh, in the last 50 years. Probably one of the areas uh, that um, is, is worth considering for a moment is that um, there, there, there was, um, in the, the writings of the Council, um, an optimism about the, uh, the way in which the Church could engage with the world, engage with modern society. And um, that has certainly been one of the key orientations of the church in terms of the Second Vatican Council to to effectively engage with the, the world around us and and if you like uh, enter into dialogue with modern attitudes, modern um, approaches to things and to find ways in which the church can be more or part of the society, not standing aloof or apart or not being a ghetto within the society but, but actually engaging with the society. And look, I would certainly think that's a very important thing. To a certain extent, that approach um, was, it was an expression of uh, a desire to change something which had happened in the church, particularly in the 19th century. In the 19th century, um, in the 19th century there, were, there were a lot of forces at work that were... Um, Challenging the church Uh, There were a lot of liberal movements uh, in the society seeking to bring about changes in um, in in social structures and and, uh, There was the whole effort to promote uh, Nationalism and, and greater autonomy and freedom a lot of these things had a lot of good value a lot of them were inspired way back from the Enlightenment period a lot of um there were a lot of challenges out there um, to traditional catholic teaching on a range of subjects so that um the church did become a, a bit defensive you know it was feeling itself under attack uh, under threat and um and a lot of the the teaching of the church tended to be defensive or, or uh, take positions contrary to the society so the church was really wanting to defend its tradition to defend its its traditional understanding of things and so on if you like against a lot of modern forces and uh while that was in some ways necessary it also did put the the church into a bit of a fortress mentality it did close ranks a bit it did tend to to want to protect itself against a, a range of forces um so one of the so a number of people were aware of this and felt this is not healthy for the church, and so there is a need to to engage more with society. And so, so that was one of the things I think that flavored the the Second Vatican Council um, and set up a number, set up a range of things. You know, ecumenism would be a very good example of this. That the church was saying, now we we want to reach out and and establish relationships, not just defend Catholic dogma or Catholic teaching against Protestantism, we, we, we're not going to abandon that, but of course not abandon what we believe, but we want to enter into dialogue, we want to find what is common between ourselves and Protestant churches and so on. So there are a lot of these efforts and, and a lot of efforts too with regard to modern society. Let's recognise the good that's in society, let's not just recognise the, the dangers, the, the, the uh, threats, but let's look at the good. So this was part of the flavour of the, the Second Vatican Council and one would say that was that was significant and that has filtered through over the last 50 years in a variety of ways. 50 years down the track it's probably worthwhile just pausing and saying uh, has all of that been good and fruitful because we would also say that maybe we were too open to the world. Maybe we were people in the period immediately after Council, were too accepting of a lot of things in society in an effort to engage in dialogue. And I think now we are developing a more nuanced approach to engagement with the world. And I think it's important to get a balance between engagement but also the preservation of our traditions, of our perception, which comes from our faith.
0: Bishop, I must say that a lot of people would look... At, there's been a lot of change, obviously. The, the church looks very different to how it did pre-Vatican II. And a lot of people would say that much of the change has not been good progress for the church. I'm wondering what kind of, how, how do we think about this? How, what's a good guide for thinking about how the church has changed?
2: Yes, I, I, I think 50 years down the track, uh, it is a good opportunity for us to, to to say what has been the good that's come out of it but also what have been the dangers or what have been the things that have have damaged uh, the church. One of the critical issues, and and, um, Pope Benedict um, particularly worked very hard in his pontificate to to speak about the Second Vatican Council in terms of its relationship to the church today. And what he spoke about was that the necessity to, to really understand the continuity that the council didn't make an about face or turn the church in a completely new direction or or, or somehow set up a new model for how the church uh, is to be in the world um, and so he spoke about um, people who tend to, to take the, the council to say the council has abandoned the past and now it's modernized and now it's wants to be relevant for modern society and the Pope would say no no that's the church has a continuity, and the council, certainly in the, in the, in the documents of the council, um, wanted to preserve and did preserve the, the tradition of the church. Um, but it did explore some areas of, of, of openness to modern society. So he spoke about people having the hermeneutic, which is basically interpretive approach. That's what a hermeneutic is. You can have a hermeneutic of continuity or a hermeneutic of rupture. And some people were, were sort of saying, it's really a rupture. The church is now different. The church is new. The church is, is modern, as against being perhaps old-fashioned before or no mm-hmm. longer um, uh, having a different style than it has today. And the Pope would say, no, no, no. It's one church. Um, the church is always a, a changing uh, reality because situations change, but its core reality doesn't change. It's, its core uh, approach. One of the things that um, in the council itself that was important, there, there were two words. One was a French word. One was an Italian word. The French word, which was used by a lot of the lot of the um, scholars, was resourcement, which was basically going back to the sources. And uh, this was this was an effort to recapture often the the, the biblical or the, or the patristic. Uh, sources of the church and this was a great enrichment uh, for the church the other word was aggiornamento, with an italian word which sort of meant a fresh openness now both those things were important see one has to do with tradition Mm -hmm. and the other one has to do with openness to the times the challenge has been to keep those two things in in balance i think i think what happened after the vatican council was there was too much and not enough resourceful. Uh, we didn't tend to take that as seriously. We were there was a bit too much excitement about new possibilities, and not enough about preserving and and learning from the past as, as we as we go forward. I think now the resourceful, if you like, the 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 rediscovery of, of the tradition is is coming through a bit more strongly now, and I think it needs to. You know, we often hear people talking about uh, the spirit of Vatican II, and, and a lot of this, a lot of people, when they use that word, tend to think about the dual idea. tend to think about the fact of openness to to modern ideas and modern society and so forth. Um, and, and, and as I said, certainly Pope Benedict was very keen to say, um, let us make sure we ground ourselves thoroughly in the tradition. And I think a new generation of Catholics now, young young Catholics who are, who are really strong in their faith, really have this desire for the more, for discovering the tradition, for entering more deeply into the tradition of the church.
1: Well, and I guess that seems like one of the main tasks of the church, to balance these two things, the tradition and this openness to the you know, possibilities of the future and what's mm. what's happening in our world. And in doing that, perhaps we can see a lot of these key initiatives of Vatican II flourish. And you've already mentioned such things as ecumenism, but what else is there, Bishop Julian, that you'd say is a key initiative that's come through?
2: I think it's worth recognising some of the um, particular contributions that maybe we now just take for granted, but really have been uh, very important. Certainly, I think the document, uh, one of the first documents that came out was, was a document on the Word of God the fact that it if you like focus Catholics more upon the scriptures and, and certainly since the Vatican Council there has been a really a, a, for Catholics a greater focus on the scriptures as the Word of God a greater consciousness of the, the, the role and place of the scriptures in, in daily life in prayer um, we, we're studying the scriptures so much more we we're, we're having scripture study programs at universities and so forth, that has been a a great thing. Um, Before tend to be focused more on the Catechism, if you like, you know, these are the teachings. Obviously the Catechism has has been very, very important, but the Word of God, which is a spiritual source for our faith, is is very important. So I don't think we should underestimate how uh, significant that has been and how that has enriched Catholic life so, so greatly. We were all very aware of the changes in the liturgy. You know, that certainly those who, of us who went through that period of, of change were very conscious of experiencing the, the rollout of changes. But as we're also aware, there was a, a, a time when there was far too much experimentation, so much, so much, too much uh, liberality taken with the celebration of the liturgy. And one of the things that happened was that, um, and this was never intended by the Second Vatican Council, was if, if you like, there was a horizontal horizontalization of the liturgy. In other words, the liturgy became more a community celebration at the horizontal level and less focused, if you like, on the vertical, yeah. on the worship of God. Now, what we're seeing now is a correction to that. We're seeing that um, more and more there's an effort to to preserve a sense of reverence about the liturgy, to 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 make the liturgy a truly an act of worship and not just a community celebration. Um, the Vatican Council spoke about active participation. That didn't mean everybody having a job in the liturgy. It really meant people being more involved in liturgy, not just being spectators at a liturgical uh, event, but participating in it interiorly, in the heart. You know. Um, so when we find that's happened now. People are, are more—they're uh, more literate, if you like, with regard to an understanding of the nature of the liturgy. And um, and I think are, and are participating more. They understand the elements of liturgy a little more and, and want to participate in it. So, from a time when there was a tendency to focus on the, the horizontal dimension, uh, we're now moving, I think, much more to to understand liturgy as an act of worship. I mentioned ecumenism already. The Catholic Church has made a very strong clear commitment to ecumenism and and hence also to inter-religious dialogue that has produced a lot of very good fruit and from a time when there was a lot of sectarianism uh, in the society we now find we've built good relationships with the churches and we come into common understandings on agreements of areas of doctrine and practice which has been a, a great advance for the church and we always carry those words of the lord may they all be one as you, Father, and I are one. Um, That was a prayer of Jesus at the Last Supper for the church. May his disciples be one. So the church is seriously seeking to implement that. And I think that's very important. It gives a greater common witness to the world of Christians being more united and not fighting among themselves. Um, And uh, one of the other areas that um, was very important and also an area of great, um, of course not a little controversy at the present moment, and that is the area of religious liberty. It, it really emerged from the question of whether we can respect the religious freedom of other people, and this is connected with humanism, of course, but it was also a basic understanding that in a society that, um, that while we would be seeking to evangelise and, and, and present the faith, we also do have respect for people and, and respect for people's um, personal conscience with regard to faith, so we, we don't seek to impose it. We're also, or the, the, the um, Second Vatican Council was also very keen in this area to speak about the fact that no state can impose religion upon its citizens and there needs to be a recognition of religious freedom within, within the state, and we certainly enjoy that to a large extent here in Australia. But in other places that has been a very real issue. So that is controversial because um, some people and particularly people, the the favourist group who who cut themselves off for the church, see this as a critical issue. They say there's only one faith and therefore we cannot respect what other people believe. You know, it's threatening the integrity of, of our faith. So there are many others, of course, many other initiatives and influences from the Second Vatican Council. I think it's right to call it the Great Grace. It has been an enormous grace for the Church, an enormous blessing for the Church. It's always said that the period after councils is often a uh, turbulent time, and we've certainly experienced that. Um, And we've seen a lot of unforeseen things emerge that the Council of Fathers would never have predicted uh, in the Church. But the Church, guided by the Holy Spirit, finds its way, preserves its truth, and can move forward on the foundation of the Second Vatican Council, I think, very confidently into the future.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you for a beautiful reflection on where we are 50 years after the Second Vatican Council and, and what we have to look forward to and work towards. Thank you, Bishop Julian.
2: different aspects of uh, Catholic life and culture and one thing that I'm sure all Catholics are um, are very aware of is uh, the use of incense. It's worth just reflecting on uh, why we use incense, where the whole idea of incense came from. When It's so common to us now we probably just uh, expect it but uh, it, it's probably worth just looking at the source and meaning of, of incense.
0: That would be really good because all I remember being thinking as a child was that incense carried our prayers to God. I'm not really sure if that's true or
2: not. Well, well, that is a very good Catholic um, intuition because uh, in the in the scriptures it does talk quite precisely about that. Um, one of the Psalms, uh, Psalm 141, speaks about that. Our prayers rise to God like incense. Ah. So the smoke smoke always goes up. So um, your your instincts on that were absolutely. Correct, and it's a. It is a, a nice thought that um, as smoke goes up, we like to think of our own prayers, going up. Of course, incense isn't something only uh, used by Catholics. It's it's a really almost a universal uh, religious instrument uh, because <clears throat> it has a number of elements to it. it. It's firstly incense is used as a way of um, of giving respect or honor to something. And so kings sometimes have incense burning in front of them and, and so on. And <clears throat> of course, incense, um, as you know, there's, you have charcoals, which are just giving the, just burning. But then incense itself is not just something which creates smoke, but it's also meant to be fragrant. And so incense will always have, because um, smoke itself is not attractive in its own right but incense will always be fragrant and, and uh, while it may not be good for people with asthma or something it's but at the same time it's uh it can be quite beautifully smelling and and and, and so you could put incense in front of a something important as a, as a way of the fragrance reflect reflecting your own sense of reverence to towards that object and so it's, it's quite common in, in in a number of religions in the, uh, it's clearly evident in the scriptures in the Old Testament. We see a number of references there. Um, Isaiah talking about the incense filling the, the, the temple. Uh, so it creates that sense, too, of holiness, of sacredness. So when something is incensed, the smoke somehow, I don't know, it's probably just a, a human sense that uh, there's something holy here. Mysterious. It's like, it's mysterious. That's my right, sense of mystery. Um, so, so we use incense um, to, to, for instance, we'll incense the Blessed Sacrament, both in, in Mass. It can be incense at the time of the elevation. We incense the altar at the beginning of Mass because, and and again at the end of the Offertory, as a sign of saying this is a holy place. This is where a holy thing is going to happen. Uh, we incense the Gospel. This, so this is the Word of God. Um, about to be proclaimed, the gospel in particular. So we incense the gospel, uh, we incense the the, uh, the celebrant, um, and, uh, and and then the people because we're all holy people offering worship together. So those ways in which we give expression to in, uh, the use of incense are all meant to give um, respect and honour, but also to give that create that sense of uh, of holiness, of mystery, of worship. And, um, you know, we, we often hear people commenting about Catholics are into bells and smells. Mm. <laughs> well, we have both, yes, we do, but we're human beings and we, we, we like to, we need to give expression to spiritual realities in physical ways. That's why we have colors of vestments and, and different things, we have sacramentals. All these things are meant to give um, expression at the human level to spiritual realities. And so incense really fits into that, that category.
0: So can, just what, just to clarify, Bishop, it's not because Catholics used to smell really bad and we had to drown it out. No, Nothing no. Nothing
2: to it, do with that. Well, no, I don't think so. However, I can tell you a story about this. There is one famous uh, censer. It's uh, a great censer in Santiago de Compostela. And uh, if you ever get a chance to visit that cathedral in the Midday Mass each day, they there is this absolutely enormous uh, sensor which is lit, incense is placed in, and then they pull the rope. So it swings literally from the ceiling of a, of a very big basilica from one side to the other. And uh, it's the most extraordinary experience and to And how many to men do they
0: it. need to pull it
2: up? They need about eight men to, to get it going. It's, it's quite extraordinary. Now, people are saying, well, why is there this huge sensor in this particular uh, basilica. Now, I don't know the, the, the origins of it, but, but some say that in the medieval time, because this, this was the third most important place of pilgrimage, uh, and that um, after the pilgrims had been on the road for months, getting to Santiago de Compostela in those days, there probably wasn't a nice smell in the cathedral as they all gathered to celebrate mass. So some do claim the reason that huge sensor was to to somehow give a little bit of fragrance to the air in Santiago de Compostela. I don't know whether that's true, but certainly that sensor is the, the largest censer uh, in the world.
0: Well, what another interesting expo- exploration of the curiosities of Catholic life. Thank you very much,
1: Bishop Julian. And this brings us to the end of another episode of Q&A with Bishop Julian Porteus.
0: You've been listening to Q&A with Bishop Julian Porteus. For more episodes, visit radio.org.